Let's open up in a word of prayer, and then we'll uh, look into Judges chapter 3 tonight. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the book of Judges and the practical truth it has for us as believers. And Lord, we just pray that you would uh, continue to lead us and guide us through the power of your spirit. Help us to set aside the busyness of our days and uh, just uh, be able to focus on your word for the next 45 minutes together. Lord, we thank you and, and pray that your spirit would lead us and guide us. Pray for those who couldn't make it tonight. Think of Dave as he's working and others. Lord, just pray that you'd uh, just remind them that you're there uh, with them. And Father, we just uh, pray that you would uh, continue to uh, watch over us as a church. And keep us all healthy. And we just uh, thank you for your goodness and your grace in our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, tonight we're going to begin uh, chapter 3. And this is where we start to look at the lives of the judges of Israel. Um, basically, everything's been intro up to this point. And uh, we've seen the cycle that Israel is in. Uh, the cycle that basically they, um, they're doing uh, what's right, they're following the Lord, and then they do something bad, they follow the gods or the idols, and then Israel gets punished from God, disciplined, and um, ask, they're broken, they ask for God's help, God sends help to a judge, and Israel is um, repented and and they live in prosperity for a couple of years, and then the whole thing starts over again. <laughs> and that's basically the story we're going to see throughout this entire book. And so it's a time, just to remember, it's a time of lawlessness. It's a time of rebellion. It's a time of moral failure among the people of God. And we see that uh, all around us today as well. And so the whole... The whole attitude of Judges can be summed up in a, in a couple words. It's, you can read it in Judges 17, 6, and, and then chapter 21, 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel, but every man did what was right in his, what? Own eyes. And that's a pretty good description of our world today, I would venture to guess. Uh, and so, remember, God had redeemed Israel, right, from the Egyptian bondage. He led them through the wilderness for 40 years. He brought them to safety to the land of Canaan. He promised to defeat all their enemies. Just I'm going to take care of everything for you. If only they would walk in his, follow his commands, walk in his, by his word, walk with him in holiness. That's what he wanted. And we see that command all the way back in, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 to six, and you see these, you can read that on your own, but he gives them several commands in those verses, Deuteronomy 7, 1 to 6. First of all, verse 1, he says, I want you to go in there and possess the land. Take the land as your own. I've already figured this all out. All you have to do is go in and possess it. Number two, you have to destroy all the nations of Canaan. Everybody. Number three, you're not to make any peace treaties with them whatsoever. God has a purpose in this. It seems cruel to us. Why, well, you're going to go in and wipe an entire nation out? Yes. Think of them as ISIS, kind of. You know, there's no <laughs> moral good by keeping people like that around. Uh, number three, in verse two, he says, no, make, uh, make no uh, p- 
peace treaties with them. Number four, he says, show them no mercy, no mercy at all. This is God's judgment on these people who are following other gods. Number five, verse three, he says, um, refuse to intermarry with them. He's very clear. He says, you're, you're to go in there and possess the land, kill everybody. And it's almost like he knew that he weren't, they weren't going to do that. <laughs> and so he said, by the way, don't intermarry with them either. And then number six, he says, completely destroy every trace of their pagan religions. So everything they worshipped after you're in there should be gone. It should be burned. It should be just utterly destroyed. And the reason they were commanded to do this was, it says in verse 6 of Deuteronomy 7, that God's people were to be different, called out from all the people around them. So he made it pretty easy for them. Just go in and wipe them all out, and then you'll be the only people there, so you don't have to worry about you know, the temptation there. They had been chosen by God. He saved them. He blessed them. He promised them victory if, if they would walk with him, right? And he, he demanded complete separation from these other people. He knew, because he's God, he knew that if, if the Israelites would allow themselves to be entangled with the, the Canaanites, they would become corrupt spiritually and morally. They'd be drawn away from God. He knew that in advance. So he's not being the God that ruins their party. He's being the God that protects them. And when that happened, God promised that he would visit them suddenly, suddenly in his wrath. He said, if you do this, if you don't obey this, it's not going to be good. You're going to experience my wrath in a way you never have before. So Israel had their instructions. God didn't stutter. It was very clear. But guess what? They failed to carry out the Lord's command. They failed to do what God asked them to do. And you can see the record of it in Judges um, over and over again. The record of their failure is chronicled. In chapter 1, verses 19 to 34, you see in, in verses 19 to 20, it says Judah failed. Verse 21, Benjamin failed. 22 to 26, Joseph failed. Manasseh failed, 27 to 28. Ephraim failed in verse 29 of chapter 1. Uh, Zebulun failed in verse 30. Asher failed in 31 to 32. Naphtali failed in 33. And Dan failed. Even the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh they even refused to enter the land, choosing to remain on the other side of the Jordan. So they just utterly were totally, completely disobedient. And so what happens is after a while, they became like their enemies, just like God said they would. They adopted the wicked ways of the various Canaanite tribes around them, and eventually Israel began to worship these false gods that they once detested. They worshiped the false gods of Canaan. And so they followed this spiral downward and downward, and God allowed them to know his displeasure. He allowed them to know his judgment. And when judgment came, and this is the cycle of sin we see, eventually the people realized that they were to blame. This isn't God's fault. This is our fault. We didn't do what he said. They would repent. They would seek the Lord. And when they did, God would forgive them and raise up a deliverer, and the deliverer in the book of Judges, are these judges that God would raise up. And these men and these women, by the way, both, would help Israel throw off the, 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 the bondage and the yoke of their oppressors was a result of God's judgment because they weren't following him. And they also helped them to live for God. So they were kind of a spiritual leader among Israel. 
And they would follow these judges, by the way, until they died. And that's the cycle we'll see through each judge. They did such and such, and then they died. And then, guess what would happen? As soon as they didn't have a judge, what would Israel do? Go right back to the same trough they they were drinking from before, eating from before. They would go right back, and they would revert to their wicked ways, and the cycle would begin all over again. And so this continued in Israel for about 400 years, this, this, this crazy cycle, until they got their first king. And so the book of Judges is profitable for us today because in its pages we find that Israel faces a lot of the same problems that we face in our world today. They face physical enemies, so do we. They, they face problems living in their world, the flesh, the devil, so do we. Um, and so tonight we want to look at uh, some lessons from the lives of Israel's judges. And tonight we'll be looking at uh, Othniel, the Lion of God was his kind of nickname, you might say. And as we look at these, these men and these women in the coming weeks, these are, are, are people that God raised up in order to deliver Israel from the situation they found themselves up, found themselves in. And you know what? He's still doing that today, by the way. This isn't just an Old Testament thing. I mean, God's no longer looking for judges to raise up, right? But he is looking for leaders, spiritual leaders, to, be, to lead among his people. Because when you look around um, the Christian world today, uh, we're lacking that. You see moral failure after moral failure after moral failure. And it's kind of like, wow, okay, what's, what's, who's left? <laughs> what's going to happen? And so he's looking for men and women to stem the tide of evil that threatens to overtake the church in these dark days in which we're living in even today. He's looking for people who rise up, take their stand with God and the Bible, and stand up against the pressure that we're even facing now and we'll be facing more in the time time ahead. And so he's looking for people who can be willing to step up to the plate and say, you know what, I want to be used by God to change the world for the glory of God. And it's got to start one heart at a time, right? One soul at a time. But uh, some people really um, think that, you know, well, we just got to hang out until God comes back. And that's not what God has called us to do. He wants us to be engaged in the world in which we live. And these were ordinary people. These weren't some super spiritual, you know, top of the line, A-list individuals. These were people who, who basically were ordinary men and women and he used them to accomplish his purpose in the nation of Israel. And that's the kind of people he uses today. You don't have to be some big spiritual bigwig to be used by God, obviously. And so with that in mind, let's turn our attention to Judges chapter 3. And we'll read the first 11 verses. And then we'll dig in. Judges chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now these are the nations that the Lord, that the Lord left to test by to test Israel by them that is all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan it was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war to teach war to those who had not known it before these are the nations the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians the Hivites who lived in on Mount Lebanon and from Mount uh, Baal-Hermon, as far as Lebo-Hamath, they were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their, 
fathers by the hand of Moses. So God didn't wipe all these people out. He left them for a purpose. The land was theirs, but there were some people there, left. And, and, and God said, they're there for a purpose. I'm going to test these people to see whether they're going to fulfill my commands. Verse 5. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Parasites, uh, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters, they took to themselves for wives. And their own daughters they gave to their sons. And they served their gods. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth, the pagan gods. Therefore, verse 8, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. And when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. Othniel, the son of Canaz, Caleb's younger brother. And the spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. And he went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, the king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. Verse 11, so the land had rest 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Canaz, uh, Canaz died. So this man, this judge that God raised up, Othniel, his, his, his name literally means the Lion of God. So this wasn't some weakling guy. I mean, he had some uh, wartime experience, and he was a man who lived up to his name. And because Israel refused to walk with the Lord like he had commanded them to do, he, he, re, he, he refused to drive out all their enemies in the land of Canaan. And he did that, obviously, the word says there, to test them. And so Israel was forced by God to live alongside the very people they had been sent to destroy. And so you're told basically in the first four verses are exactly why God left them in the, in the, in the land. Look at what it says. It says, first of all, in verse 1, he left them there to prove Israel or to test them. The word you know, means to put the, to, put the test. Um, God allows pagans to live around his people to test them that's why when we're saved we're not just you know boom going to heaven Uh, he leaves us here in a world that hates god (laughs) hates holiness rejoices in wickedness and sin and evil and you say well why does he leave us here well part of it is a test it's to test our faith it's to help us grow in our faith and so his people were tested to see how they would live when they were surrounded by wickedness. We're definitely tested here in the Bay Area, right? I mean, everywhere you look, it's kind of an anti-God sentiment. And so his people were tested to see if they would keep his commands or not. Well, guess what? Did they fail the test? Yes, they did. They did. They failed the test. So he left them there to prove them. Secondly, he left them there to teach the new generations about spiritual warfare. See, you got to remember, this was, has been going on for some 400 years, and so some of the people had died off, and then a new generation came up, and maybe they were under the rule of a, a, a judge that where everything was peaceful and, you know, that kind of a thing. 
And so they didn't know war. They didn't know anything about it. So God said, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to teach this new generation that doesn't know anything about any kind of spiritual warfare that we're dealing with. I want them to understand what their forefathers understood about war with their enemies. And so God wanted them to be strong. He wanted them how to know how to fight the enemy when he came around. And guess what? They failed that test too. They just failed the test. It wasn't long until this caused a lot of serious problems among the people of Israel. Israel proved that they could not be trusted, that they would not stand up against the enemies of God. They proved that they would rather join in with the enemy than fight them. Um, so we see some of that sentiment even in our own government today. Um, so we just have to be aware that this is, this is a cycle that's going to go on. And so let's notice how God delivered Israel from a time of cruel bondage by raising up this man, the Lion of God, Othniel. And we see here in verses 5 to 7 of chapter 3, <clears throat> Israel's compromise. What happened to him? This, this gives the ugly details of, of Israel's first great failure. Um, and and, and wh- what they did stands as a, as a stark uh, warning, you might say, to the people of God even today. We don't ever want to go there. What Israel did is what we see people around us today doing, even within the church. They compromised, what? The word of God. And they compromised, really, the, the understanding of, of following the will of God. They wanted to do things the way they wanted to do them, and they didn't have any um, concern for what God wanted them to do. And so they had this interaction with the Canaanites in verse 5. The Bible says the children of Israel uh, dwelt among them, lived among them. Uh, the, it has the idea that they really got comfortable okay, among them. They settled down. It, it speaks of kind of setting up house. I mean, they, they just said, hey, we're going to be among these people. Let's just, you know, we don't want to be caustic. We want to get along with everybody. So let's just, we'll just compromise and live among them it it sounds a lot like um, the church growth movement today and the whole user-friendly mentality right you have a church of god that's called to be separate to be holy to be set apart for god's glory and what do they do they say well we want to invite the people of the world in among us so you know, they're not going to feel comfortable if we sing songs about the blood of Jesus and the cross and things like that. So if we talk about sin, if we do all these things, but we want them to be here because we want to give them the gospel. So we're just going to kind of dumb everything down to the point where they really end up even compromising the gospel. And pretty soon Jesus becomes this thing that you can add to your life and he'll meet all your felt needs. And plus you get to go to heaven as a result. Uh, Forget about him being your Lord, forget about sacrificing, forget about um, trials and tribulations. None of that's ever mentioned because they just want people to come and feel comfortable among the people of God. And I, I never understood that, frankly, because 
you know, if you have believers meeting together to worship God, an unbeliever, guess what? They can't worship God. It's impossible. They don't even know God. I'm not saying we should lock them out of the building. If they want to come and observe how the people of God worship their God, hey, come on in. But the minute you begin to say, well, but they're not going to feel comfortable. Guess what? They shouldn't. They shouldn't feel comfortable. Why should they feel comfortable? They're going to hear about sin. They're going to hear about God's judgment. They're going to hear about God's holiness. They're going to hear about how they are utterly ineffective to save themselves and that they actually need to put their faith and trust in a Savior. I mean, people don't want to hear that message if God doesn't open their heart. And so what do we have to do? We have to take all that message away, and then they'll come and sing songs and, and you know, maybe even stay for food afterwards and we'll have a fun time. But they're still lost and dying and going to hell, and no one's willing to tell them because it might offend them. So we have to be careful. But here's what they did. They dwelt among these people, and they compromised. Uh, Israel was to be separate from the world around them. Now, that doesn't mean that we're um, oddly separate. You know, it doesn't mean that we wear weird clothes to stand out or anything like that. But our lifestyle is completely different from what we see going around in the world today. Um, the Bible calls us a, a peculiar people, right? A unique people. And so that's what Israel was. They were among all the people of the world during that time. God chose them to be his own. They'd been chosen, redeemed, set apart to serve the Lord God Almighty, and he expected them to be separate. And because they, they didn't, what was the result? They opened up the floodgate of sin. All of a sudden, Israel, who was God's holy people, became unholy because they opened up the door and uh, basically it would end with them facing the terrible chastisement of God. And it's not just an Old Testament thing. That's what's so practical about this book. Paul says the same thing to us in 2 Corinthians 6.17. He says, Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. God expects us to be different than everything around us. Titus chapter 2, verse 14 says this, Who gave himself, Christ, for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people, listen, for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The King James, I think, says a peculiar people. <laughs> That's what we're called to be. Once again, not weird, but set apart. It may seem weird to those of the world, but that's okay, as long as we're doing what God calls us to do. Uh, it means to be his special possession. He loved us. He chose us. He sent his son to die for us. He redeemed us. He bought us. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 to 20, it says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, Paul says, for you were bought, what? with a price. So glorify God in your body. The biggest mistake we make as believers is when we start to live like uh, we're our own person. That we can just go do whatever we want whenever we want. Because we're living under the grace of God. That's, that's not true. 
We're called to follow his commands. We're called to do what God tells us to do. We can't just go out and set our own agenda. And when we refuse to walk in his will and under the, the oversight of his word, you might say, uh, we open up the floodgates of sin in our own lives. And eventually it overwhelms us and eventually it, it drowns us in all the turbulence that it brings. And then we cry out to God and God sets things right. See, we, you know, to be honest, we have the same cycle in our own Christian lives, do we not? I mean, we may not be to the degree where we're actually worshiping pagan gods, but that's how far they went. And that just speaks of what? That speaks of the grace of God. I mean, if I was God, I mean, I don't think these people would be around today. I, I wouldn't have the patience. Really? You're going to do this again? <laughs> I mean, I would just be frustrated. And yet, we do the same thing. We do the same thing. But it's a dangerous thing for the child of God to live like the world around him. We're not called to do that. So we have to be reminded that we are, they had this interaction with the Canaanites. Secondly, in verse 6, it says they had intermarriage with the Canaanites. They're not just hung around them. They actually intermarried. That's a, a, a complete opposite from what God told them to do. Uh, the people of Israel got so used to living among the Canaanites, they began to intermarry with them. And that was something that was expressly forbidden by the Lord. And so this was pure rebellion, pure disobedience on their part. Now, maybe they, you know, maybe they put it this way. Well, you know, these Canaanites are not as bad as we're told. Um, they're actually pretty nice people. Uh, they're not monsters. And, you know, I'm sure their, their girls, their daughters will make good devoted Wives, there's no reason why our sons, you know, or we can't marry them. After all, if we do, maybe, maybe they'll change and, and then we'll, they'll follow our, our God. I mean, that's their thinking. That's always the thinking. And Israel soon found out uh, that it was them and not the Canaanites that changed. And that's what happens every time, every time. As they married into these tribes around them, the Israelites began to lose their national identity as God's people. And the very integrity of their families began to break down. Um, they lost the very thing that made them the people of God, that made them unique. And that same, that same danger really confronts the church today. When we get too close to the world around us, we will soon find ourselves entangled Kind of like seaweed, just tangled up in their sin. And we're thinking, how did we get into this situation? But Paul, once again, he tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 33, he says, do not be deceived. You know the verse probably. Bad company, what? Corrupts good morals, ruins good morals. That's a biblical principle. The company you keep will determine how close you walk to the Lord. That's just so important. Because if you're living in the world and you're surrounded by worldly people 24-7, you better be careful. You better make an extra effort to make up from all that toxic exposure to spend time with the people of God. And yet we see, even within our small church, the very opposite happens. 
People get so busy with work, they don't have time for God. And then they wonder why things aren't, <laughs> you know, gelling in their own life. Um, that's why God commanded his people to keep their distance from the lost world around them. 2 Corinthians 2.14, he says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. I mean, you know, we're, we're not to be a, a monastery as the church. We've talked about Sunday going out into the lost world. That's what we're called to do. That's the command. But at the same time, we're not to pal around. We're not to rub elbows. We have to be careful. We must interact with the world so that we can be the light and the salt and give them the gospel. Uh, that's what Matthew 5.16, the Lord said in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your what good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's why you know, we encourage you to reach out to your neighbors, reach out to your co-workers, reach, share the gospel. And I get it, it's hard. We can't do it in our own power. That's why Acts 1.8 says, you will receive power, what? When the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you'll be my witnesses, he told his disciples, in Jerusalem, Judea, and all of Samaria, even to the end of the earth. That's what we're called to do. But we have to keep our spiritual distance. You have to have your guard up. It's but a, a, a short step from walking with the world to living like the world. I've seen it over and over and over again. So we have to just have our radar on, be careful. Thirdly there, in verses 6 and 7, not only did they have this interaction and intermarriage with them, but they, they even participated in the idolatry with the Canaanites. Um, here they were living with them, they married them, and now guess what happens? They're worshiping with them. They're worshiping with them. I mean, can you imagine how they may have tried to rationalize this? I mean, we're talking about the people of God who are called to be holy, set apart. Well, you know, you marry a Canaanite girl and you just have to understand how they are. Uh, you know, they were brought up a little differently than us. Um, you have to allow them to bring their, their gods into the house. After all, it's just part of her culture or his culture. I've talked to Bible-believing, born-again Christians who have told me, well, yeah, we have, we have plans to get married. Really? Okay. Well, are you both believers? Oh, yeah, yeah, we're both believers. And then you dig a little more. Well, where does the other person go to church? Oh, well, well they're Catholic. You're Catholic. Interesting. And you consider them a believer. Well, they believe in God. Well, sure they do. Trust me, I was Catholic. I believed in God. Do they understand what the gospel is? Do they understand how to be saved? No. It's a religion of works. I'm not just picking on the Catholics. It could be a Mormon or whoever. I mean, they're all nice people, right? But... 
you know, you, you can see where it's very easy to go down that road. And you don't see it when you're in the dating mode or even maybe in the early marriage. But, you know, after the children come along and the wife or the husband, the, the person who's born again says, well, I'm going to take my kids to Sunday school. Well, what church are we going to? Wait a minute. Well, I'm Catholic. We're going to. So, I mean, it, it, it comes out. It rears its ugly head sooner or later. And so these people, the children of Israel, who had been redeemed by, the, the, by God, they've been saved by God time and time again. They've been delivered from Egypt by God's mighty power. They've been beneficiaries of God's power over and over again. They find themselves bowing to the idols of the God of the Canaanites. They're worshiping these pagan gods. Uh, verse 7 it says there, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord, their God, and served the Baals and the Asherah. See, many of their, their gods, these pagan gods, were associated with all these weird fertility rituals. And their worship, a lot of times, involved uh, disgusting sexual acts and prostitution and, and, and all this stuff. And, and it was just their culture. This is what these pagans did. I mean, can you imagine? It'd be like marrying a Satanist as a Christian and thinking it's okay. Well, they worship God in their own way. I, I mean, it's, it's bizarre. And so, you know, you can do a study on that. I'm not going to get into all the, the stuff. But they took these precious sons and their precious daughters, and basically they hand them over to these pagans, they had been commanded to utterly destroy. I mean, see how far they, they got away from what God had told them to do. And that same danger really confronts us today when we refuse to maintain our distance from the, the, the pagan world in which we live around us, when we continually yoke ourselves to people and the things of the world, when we bow down to their altars, we are a... A, a sacri- we're really sacrificing our children to the gods of this, this world. And by the way, it doesn't have to be a little pagan god. It can be the, 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 the god of knowledge. I know a lot of Christian parents that send their kids away to schools not even thinking. And the kids come back brainwashed, literally. Hate God, don't want anything to do with Christ, nothing. And, you know, I mean, that doesn't happen all the time. But I would say it happens more times than not. And especially when you find out what you know, some of these secular, and even Christian, by the way, universities are teaching people. It's, it's kind of crazy. And so a lot, of, a lot of this goes on today, and we're teaching our children that they're free to treat God and his word any way they please. It doesn't matter. God won't get mad at that. Don't worry about that. We're telling them it's okay to disregard God. That's what we're telling our kids. We're disregarding his word. We're disregarding his house and his worship and his will. They can set their own chart, their own course, chart their own course in this world. They don't have to worry about God's, God's interest in that. So they had idolatry going on. And then the fourth thing here in verse 7, we see there was an indifference with the Canaanites. Each step they took led them 
what? Farther away from God. Each step they took away from Him led them down this pathway toward totally abandoning His ways and Him, literally. It says there they forgot the Lord their God. The word forgot there means to ignore or uh, cease to care. I was watching a show the other day, I think it was a Gunsmoke episode or something, but this, this father and son had this rift, and, and the, the son came back home, and the father refused to acknowledge him. Like, he doesn't even exist. You know, and, and that's kind of the idea. It's like, you just totally write this person off. And the people of Israel here reached a place where they simply wrote off God. They ignored God, and they ceased to care about what he thought or what he had to say about anything. They reached a place of total indifference toward the Lord. And that's where a lot of people today have gotten to, unfortunately. I mean, most people would say, well, they think there's a God. The Lord's there. Maybe they even are familiar that his word has something to say to their hearts or whatever, how to live. They know how to, they think that God has a, a claim on their lives somehow, but they, they simply just choose to ignore him. They're not listening to him. He calls, but they don't come. And what happens? They harden their hearts against God. They harden their hearts against his word, they, against the, the, the calling of the spirit of God. And they turn basically a deaf ear to him and his call on their lives. And as far as they're concerned, God doesn't matter anymore. God doesn't matter anymore. That's a very, very dangerous place to be, is it not? But a lot of people are right there. So that's Israel's compromise. When verse 8, we begin to see Israel's chastisement. Israel's chastisement. Remember, this is the cycle that goes on. Uh, that's where Israel was spiritually, a spirit of compromise. But it's not where God leaves them. Isn't that amazing? Charles Spurgeon said this God never allows his people to sin successfully. <laughs> God never allows his people to sin successfully. I mean, you might do it. You might even do it willfully. But guess what? You're not going to get away with it. You're not going to get away with it forever. Um, I just heard, uh, I think it was on the 17th, John MacArthur in his message, he, he was calling out um, some of the spiritual leaders even today. And he's saying, he, was, he was saying this, moral failure after moral failure after moral failure. And he goes, you might have thought you got away with it. But and he didn't mention the name, but he said even there's, a, there's an apologist who's dead. And now there's a lot of things being said about his uh, lack of sexual integrity in his life. Sad. I mean, brilliant man. But obviously things weren't right. God never allows his people to sin successfully. There's always a price to pay for disobedience. There's always a price to pay for rebellion against God and his, his word and his will. And so we see here the focus of God's wrath. Um, 
in verse 8, it says, Therefore the anger of the Lord, the anger of the Lord. We forget, you know, we think of God as happy, and we think of God as gracious and loving. We forget that God is also wrathful, that he, he is angry at times, and completely legitimate anger, not sinful anger, because God can't sin. But it, it refers to a, a flaring of the nostrils. Have you ever talked to somebody or been so angry yourself that you can feel your, 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 your you know, you can feel it in your face, you're so angry. I've been there. And it's, it's an image of a face filled with wrath. And it says there that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. That means hot. It means, this isn't just like, hey, I'm a little ticked off. I mean, he is full-blown furious at them. I mean, you know, you can't really describe it in our terms, but in our, our, our own thing, it would be to the point where you're in a blind rage. I mean, in our situation, that would be sinful. But from God's point of view, he is, he is really, really, really ticked off. And guess who he was angry with? The Canaanites? No. <laughs> he wasn't mad at the... Why? They were just doing what they do. Right? See, so many times we get out in the world and then we get all mad at the, the world. We get mad at the non-Christians. How can they live that way? That's how they live. I mean, grow up. That's, that's how non-Christians live. They don't live in obedience to God. They live in rebellion to God, even if they're nice people or whatever. I mean, they're blinded spiritually. See, and that's where our hearts need to be filled with compassion and grace and love toward them. But the, the idea is to give them the message of the glorious gospel of Christ, which is a message, by the way, of hope. But they also have to understand that they're under the wrath of God as a sinful being. But God wasn't angry with the Canaanites here. I mean, he hated their sin. Don't get me wrong. But they're lost people. They didn't have his law. They hadn't been redeemed and separated and commanded to be different. It wasn't them who was being disobedient. It was who? It was Israel. His own people. They were about to be punished for their sins against God. And that's, that's such an important thing for us as believers to understand. If we are legitimately saved, God has saved us, God has transformed us, God has saved us, we put our faith and trust in Christ, in Christ alone, and we've seen His work in our life, and we choose to walk away from the Lord, guess what? It's not like you're just going to go off and have fun in the world. There's going to be a price to pay. You're not your own person. God will bring his chastisement into your life. And if it doesn't, when that doesn't happen, what is that showing us? They weren't saved. Exactly. They're illegitimate. They're, they're people who profess Christ, but they don't possess Christ. Revelation 3.19 says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. See, God doesn't command us to, to, I mean, we are holy as far as our, 
our status before God, our standing before God. He considers us holy because we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. But God isn't some monster in heaven that says, okay, I'm going to forgive you of all your sins. And if you mess up just one time, if there's any unholiness in your life from here on out, you're doomed, dude. You're, you're going to hell. That's not the God we serve. He has grace that covers that. But that's why it says, be zealous and repent in that verse in, in Revelation 3.19. You know, change your mind about your sin. If you understand your sin is displeasing to God, the God who saved you, the God who lives within you, change your mind, change your heart about it. Go back and confess it and, and move on. Don't stay there, is the idea. And then in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 6 to 12, it says, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And if you are one of those fathers, guess what? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So it basically just tells us that whole thing. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? Verse 10, for they disciplined us for a short time. Remember, our, our time here on earth is just a vapor. It's, it's here and gone, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline, good or bad, seems painful rather than pleasant. That's just common sense. But latter, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. In other words, be encouraged by these words. That's what he's saying. God does this not to hurt us. He's not up there, "Ah, I'm going to crack the whip on these people. But what does he do? He, He disciplines us to get us back to where we're supposed to be in our walk with him. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11.32, he says, But when we are judged by the Lord, we are what? We are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Once again, there's a separation there. So it's it's very important that we we understand that that God is a loving God, he's a gracious God, but he's also a a wrathful God, (laughs) that he does get angry at things. Second thing there in verse 8, you see the fierceness of God's wrath, not just the focus on it, but the fierceness. We're told that God sold Israel into the hands of a pagan king. I mean, who would do such a thing? It has the idea of giving up or, or giving one over into, into one's control or power. So, so what God did basically was, okay, you want to live this way? Well, you're going to live this way. And you're not going to have any choice in the matter. Israel gave themselves to paganism. And God punished them by giving them what they wanted. They did not want to follow his rules. They didn't want to follow his ways in their lives. So what did he do? He allowed them to be ruled by a harsh pagan king. You know, this is a good reminder for us as parents 
right? I mean, sometimes we spend so much time fighting our, our kids when they're teenagers, whatever, fighting with them, you know, they want what's not good for them, we're fighting them, fighting them, fighting them, and then, you know, they get in trouble, and, and what do we do? We just bail them out, bail them out, bail them out, over and over and over and over again, and they never learn their lesson. Remember when I first came to this church, there was an individual in jail. The mother was asking me, what do I do? What do I do? I said, well, is this the first time? No, no. God got some issues in his life. I said, and after I understood the situation, I finally told her, I said, leave him there. Well, I couldn't do that. Well, then <laughs> you're not going to help him. You keep bailing him out. He's not learning his lesson. Leave him in there. He'll figure it out. It was almost offensive to her ears when I said that. But it's the truth. It's hard. It's very hard. But sometimes God has to do that work in them. And it's, it's very difficult to watch, especially when it's your son or your daughter or your relative. But at the same time, God knows what he's doing. Let him complete that work. So this pagan king's name, Kushan Rishathaim, it means doubly wicked, Kushan. I mean, this guy, literally, it means doubly wicked and black, like black like sin. It's just bad. This guy was just a bad individual. And all this means is that Israel reaped what they had sowed. It says this over and over. Every time it mentions that name, that's what he's saying. This guy's doubly wicked. They wanted paganism. They wanted their sin. They wanted their false gods. Well, God gave them everything they wanted and more. <laughs> and this same thing happens today. I mean, look at your own life. Are you, are you as close today with the Lord as you've always been? Or can you look back on your life and say, well, there was a period of my life where I was really tight. with I mean, I was really engaged, but yeah, I'm kind of slacked off a little bit. Remember the days when you couldn't, couldn't wait to get to church, and study his word, and all this stuff was new, and wow, now it's like, eh, I guess I gotta go. We're not as committed as we used to be when we first experienced God's grace in our life. Maybe we're no longer faithful to the Lord as we once were. Maybe we don't have the desire to serve him as we once did. Other things have taken over that role in our lives. We're, we got busy, right? Um, other gods, if you will, have taken over. Little things like our pleasure and desires and toys that we collect, things like that. We have to be careful. We will reap what we sow. That's a biblical principle. Those things that you feel are so important that are keeping you away from serving the Lord more or, or spending more time with the Lord are able to become tyrants in your life. Pretty soon they're running your life. And maybe you'll reap the harvest in different ways. You know, I've dealt with parents over the years as a youth pastor and 
you know, the dad's gone, he's always working, whatever, where do they reap their harvest? They reap their harvest in the lives of their kids, right? The kids grow up and they're just a mess. They walk away from the Lord. Maybe you reap the harvest and God selling you to the things that you run after. Okay, you really want to go down that road? Go ahead. But you're going to reap what you harvest. Charles Spurgeon said this, God never allows his people to sin successfully. That's so important to, uh, for us to re, be reminded of that because we think sometimes we kind of get away with it. We're under grace. and No. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 and 8 says, Do not be deceived. Paul writes, God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. See, if you fear the crop you might reap, the time to change is now. Don't wait. God's showing you that. Don't wait, because it's just going to be more damage done. Come back to the Lord and serve Him with a full heart. And then the third thing here in verse 8, you see the fullness of God's wrath. Not just the focus and the fierceness, but the fullness. It says, God sold them into slavery. And look, He left them there for how many years? Eight years. Eight years. I mean, He allowed them to really experience the full measure of what their sin cost them. When they, when they dwelt among the Canaanites, when they married their sons and their daughters and they bowed down to their gods, they never thought, oh, wait, this is what it's going to come to. We're going to have to be judged for eight years under this cruel king. They never thought that. No one ever thinks that when you're caught up in something that's drawing you away from the Lord. You're always thinking, well, that, you know, I'll, I'll change tomorrow, I'll change tomorrow, I'll change tomorrow. And tomorrow never comes. And you get deeper and deeper and deeper in your sin. They paid a terrible price for their folly. I often wonder, wh- what price would we be willing to pay to enjoy sin? Because it's going to cost you. You're going to be paying something. We don't think of it that way. We think of it as, you know, I mean, and, and, and I'm not saying, you know, we're not talking about sins that you, where you go out and you worship a pagan god or you sleep with your neighbor's wife. or I mean, those are horrible things, right? I'm, I'm hoping you, you wouldn't do those things. But maybe there's other things in our lives that we need to address. Maybe there's unforgiveness in our hearts that we're unwilling to give to God. Maybe there's, um, you know, some kind of attitude problem we have. All those, all those things are going to cost you something. And when you're sold under your sins, you lack the power to free yourself. And that's exactly what God did. He sold them to this individual. They couldn't do anything about it. It's not like they say, whoa, whoa, wait, 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 wait. No, 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 no. This doesn't have to happen, God. We'll change. We'll change right now. Nope. You're going to pay the price. I mean, all you have to do is read some stories of, of some individuals who 
who are believers and they got off the track somewhere and they fell into sin and they're paying the price because you you lack the power to free yourself when you're in that situation but you also lack the power to help anybody around you you can't help other people when you're in that kind of situation you even lack the power to pray as you should you lack the power to read and understand God's word You you really lack the power to be what God has called you to be as his people. Someone said this, sin will take you farther than you want to go. Keep you longer than you want to stay. And cost you more than you want to pay. Sin will take you farther than you want to go. Keep you longer than then you want to stay and cost you more than you want to pay. That's so true. So we see Israel's compromise. We see Israel's chastisement. In verses 9 to 11, we see Israel's champion. Here he comes. When Israel came to themselves, verse 9, but when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, they, they realized, well, we're in this fix there's no getting around this. I, I can't help myself anymore. I need God's help. What did they do? They called on God, and guess what? God heard them. Just like he hears us. When they turned back to him, see, it doesn't matter how far you've run away from God. God is always just one step back. Just one step He reached out to them in deliverance. He raised up their first judge, the lion, the man named Othniel. Othniel was is basically called a deliverer, which means savior. That's what that means. And that's what he was. Look at his credentials here. It says that he was Caleb's younger brother. We're also told that he's the son of of Canaan's. And there's some discrepancy here because I think in Numbers 13.6 it says that Caleb's father was named uh, uh, Jephneh. And so it's not a contradiction. One commentator explains it this way. Canaan's was probably Caleb's brother and Othniel was probably his son. And so that would have made him Caleb's nephew. But if Canaan's was dead... Othniel would have been elevated to the place of leadership in the family. Thus, he would have been recognized as Caleb's brother. At any rate, he was a man of courage. He was a man of bravery. In Judges chapter 1, it tells us that he defeated a Canaanite city to win Caleb's daughter as his wife. So he was a man of great courage. Um, He had strong ties to the former generation of leaders in Israel. So God raised this man up exactly for this purpose. Uh, Some believe he was around the age of 75 at this point. He wasn't a young puppy, but he had a lot of experience under his belt. He was battle-tested. He was available. And guess what? God says, you're going to be the guy. (laughs) He reminds me that God can do anything through anyone. Would you agree with that? He can do anything through anyone. 
It doesn't matter how old they might be. It doesn't matter about their past. It doesn't matter about who they are. God can use us for his glory if, if we're willing to do things his way, if we're willing to make ourselves available to him. And he did that. The Lord used him in a mighty way. We've heard the, the phrase, the greatest ability is what? Is availability, right? The greatest ability is availability. I mean, sometimes in ministry, you know, you have needs and sometimes you express those needs to people. Well, let me pray about that. What are they saying? I'm not available. You know, I don't think we need to pray about everything that we do all the time. I think, you know, if, if, if we see a need and we have the ability to fulfill that need for the Lord's glory, then we should do it. Uh, we just need to be careful about that. So we, we see his, his companion here. He was useful to the Lord because who was his companion? The Spirit of the Lord, it says, came upon him, right? I mean, he was a mighty warrior and everything, but he didn't have the the power within himself to deliver Israel. But he allowed the Spirit of the Lord to take control of his life, and God was able to do and use him in great ways that probably he could not even imagine. Um, I mean, even though we see him as the deliverer of Israel, he wasn't. <laughs> God was. God was. God delivered Israel through Othniel. And so that's a good lesson for us, right? Sometimes we put people on pedestals and we, we, we end up worshiping personalities or individuals and we forget to think that, well, wait a minute, no, that, that, God's just using that person for this time. If we're left to ourselves, we're incapable of serving God at all. It's only by God's grace that he allows us to serve him in any way. The only way that we'll be usable and useful to God is that when we're controlled by his spirit and not the flesh. Galatians 5.16 says, But I say, walk in, walk by the spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, Paul says. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. The desires of the flesh, or the desires of the spirit, are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident: sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. Envy, envy uh, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. If you didn't mention your little pet thing there, it's, it's in the things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, Paul says, that you, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The idea is, is that those who live in such a way, it doesn't mean if you, wow, okay, you got drunk, oh, I guess you're never going to inherit the kingdom of God. No, he's not saying that, but you're living this as a way of life. God has not changed you. 
Verse 22, he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. And even in Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled, be controlled, right, with the Spirit. So the Spirit of God is what enables us to stand against not just the flesh, but all the enemies around us here in this world. The Spirit of God makes us powerful for the glory of God. The Spirit of God will use us in ways that we can't even imagine. But to do that, we have to yield ourselves to Him. We have to yield to His power. We have to give His Spirit, His power, control in our lives. And then, lastly here, we see Othniel's conquest god enabled him to defeat this old doubly wicked (laughs) king he he delivered israel from the bondage of this pagan king and he empowered him to judge the nation of israel for the pretty much the rest of his life uh, some 40 years god gave othniel victory in his life because Othniel gave himself to the Lord. What we need to be reminded by this tonight is that, you know what? Do you want the Lord to use you for his glory? Do you want to see him do great things through your life for his glory? Do you want to be free from the yoke of paganism? Do you want to see your family delivered from the bondage of sin in the world do you want victory spiritually in your own life then you have to yield to the lord like othniel did i mean if you're concerned today where you are spiritually if you're concerned where your life is headed where your marriage is headed where your family's headed where your children are headed you need to come to the Lord and you need to start, start fresh. I mean, if you know Christ, if he saved you, it's just one step back. And ask him to, to give you that, that desire to serve him more, to love him more, to be more obedient to him and his word, to give him more of a desire for his word, to give him more of a compassion for the lost and, the do, uh, the, the, the lost and dying world around us. This is not the time, as I said Sunday, for us just to hold up and just pray for the Lord's return. That's not what we're called to do. But it's not going to get any easier. It's, there's, there's, I mean, just look at what's going on. (laughs) It's not good. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure that out. But you know what? God will give us the grace, and he will continue to glorify himself through us as the church, as we obey him, his word, and ask him to just continue to use us in this time and in this place. And he'll do that. I, I, I completely uh, believe that to be true. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. And Lord, we, we do thank you for this example of your deliverer, Othniel, and we thank you for his obedience to you and thank you for the way that you used him um, even later in life, all those years, to help your people, Israel, deal 
with this cycle of sin that they were given to. And Father, we thank you for your grace that allows us the opportunity to repent and to turn back to you and to realize, wow, maybe I did get off the beaten path here and head down a road that maybe you weren't directing me to. Maybe we need to turn around and and come back to you and, and ask you to to lead us and guide us and not think that we have this on our own. Father, I pray that you would use uh, our time tonight and just our fellowship as a church for your glory. And Lord, we pray for our community. We pray for our church. We pray for those that we know that don't know you as uh, we do. And Lord, uh, we pray that you would give us wisdom to how to best reach out to them with the gospel of Christ. And part of that is living a life that's different before them, but then also having the message come off our lips to their ears that it's Christ and Christ alone that can save them from your judgment and from your wrath. And so, Father, we pray that you would uh, just give us your purpose each and every day as we when we wake up lord that we'd be filled with your spirit and that we would desire to do what you have us to do for your glory for that day we thank you and we just uh, pray you bless our time of fellowship now in jesus precious name all god's people said amen amen